check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. Welcome one and welcome all. As we say hello and also welcome back to our successful Road Warriors. As the Atlanta Hawks return from their 16-day, 6,700-mile road trip with a respectable 4-4 four four record. This is a Toast to the A-Town, presented by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andre Aldridge. And first, let's handle a little business. It's everyone's favorite tournament of the year. The golfers are in Augusta, Georgia to compete for the coveted jacket. And DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, is putting you in the center of the action by giving you a shot to land in the green. This week, DraftKings is giving you a free shot at the $1 million top prize when you download and sign up using promo code TBPN. If you haven't tried DraftKings, this is the time. It's easy to play. Pick six golfers, stay under the salary cap, and submit your lineup before the tournament tees off early Thursday morning. Then sit back and follow the action. Rack up points for pars, birdies, finishing position, and more. Download the DraftKings app now and use code TBPN during sign-up. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at the $1 million top prize. That's code TBPN, and you can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. And from the first tee, we take our talk back to the hardwood. This is episode 10 of A Toast to the A-Town. That's a magical number. Not necessarily the theme of this edition, but noteworthy nonetheless. Currently, no Atlanta Hawk wears number 10, but a few of my favorites are obviously Mookie Blaylock at the top of the list, Mike Bibby wore number 10 for the three-plus seasons he was a Hawk, and current L.A. Clippers head coach Ty Lue wore number 10 when he was an Atlanta Hawk for parts of four seasons. Ty Lue figures big in the Hawks' just-completed road trip. You see, after things started off swimmingly in L.A. with a five-point win over the Lakers, well... You thought that the the Hawks were doing extremely well because that win over the Lakers was their eighth consecutive victory. They appeared to be stretching the win streak to nine against L.A.'s other team two nights later. With six and a half minutes to go in the third quarter, the Hawks were crushing the Clippers by 21 points. So a disgusted Ty Lue took out every one of his starters. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Marcus Morris Sr., Reggie Jackson, and Big Zubats come sit in the observation seats next to me. Terrence Mann, Patrick Patterson, Nick Batum, Amir Coffey, and most important, Luke Kennard, what do you have? That group narrowed the deficit to just seven by the time Leonard and George returned with nine minutes to play. Worst news for the Hawks, Luke Kennard stayed in the game. That guy, who hadn't played in three games, went a perfect eight of eight from the floor in the second half, matching his season high with 20 points. The Clippers registered a stunning 119-110 victory. That loss put a little pall over the road trip as the Hawks lost three of their next four in Sacramento, Denver, and Phoenix. But in always looking for a silver lining, that L.A. performance by Luke Kennard, well, that solidified the Clippers' thoughts that maybe they could move on without the scoring of Lou Williams off the bench. So at the trade deadline, the mayor of Lou Willville was sent to the Hawks for the leadership Rajon Rondo brings. Now, Rondo's value goes beyond anything in a box score. And in the big picture for me, Lou's scoring will add more value to the Hawks than they had before the trade deadline. 
Now, staying focused on the big picture is important in every sport. And my invited guest for this 10th episode definitely embodies that. Can you imagine going to work for 10 straight years athletically and every day was a good day? And by that, I mean no losses, zero. All we do is win, win, win. Well, that's incredible, incredulous, and damn near impossible. But that's the worldwide success and excellence we'll be talking about with an Atlanta icon from another sport. It'll be world record-holding Olympic champion and Morehouse man, Edwin Moses. That's a great conversation for just a little bit later. Back to the Hawks' road trip. And how can I call it respectable when our side was definitely on the struggle bus? Well, it's because of how they responded to tough times. And the seventh stop of the journey and the last place we wanted to go with just two wins and four losses on a road trip, the house of horrors known as San Antonio. Now, every Hawks fan knows our history there. Straight L train, damn near every time. Although I was sitting in the AT&T Center January of 2020 when I witnessed history. The Hawks had suffered 21 straight losses in San Antonio, had not won a game there since February 15, 1997, when some guy named Dominique Wilkins was in the starting lineup for San Antonio. Well, 13 months ago, there were six players on the Hawks roster that weren't even born the previous time Atlanta had won a game down there. So in the fourth quarter, with the Hawks down by 14 points, they didn't have all that baggage with them, and they went to work. Trey Young scored 31 points. John Collins had 18 and 10 rebounds. Kevin Herter busted a three-pointer with six seconds left, and the Hawks shocked the Spurs with a 121-120 to victory. So the task last Thursday night wasn't going to be impossible, just hard. I mean, the Spurs still had DeMar DeRozan, and only two active players in the NBA have scored more points against the Hawks than the 768 points DeMar had against us going into the game. Carmelo Anthony with 936 points, and LeBron with 1,603 against us. As for the Texas Challenge, well, oh, by the way, John Collins got injured the previous game in Phoenix, so he wouldn't be suiting up. And just for shits and giggles, DeMar DeRozan would score 36 more points against us while dishing nine assists. And the Hawks had a couple of late-game meltdowns, but they overcame them. The action went to double overtime. Trey Young didn't have his best game while working with a sore knee. Still, he scored 15 points in the overtime sessions. And Atlanta made it two in a row in San Antonio. Outstanding. Clint Capella with 28 points and 17 rebounds. Bogey Bogdanovich also had 28 and made four of five shots from downtown. And I know we're doing six degrees of the number 10 on this episode. So for the record, DeMar DeRozan wears number 10 for San Antonio. But that's not why he lit us up for 36 points. That's just what he does. Hawks finished the road trip by blowing out the shorthanded Pelicans 126-103 to in New Orleans. No full compliment for our side, though, either. Trey Young and Gallinari both set that game out. So, as I said, a respectable 4-4 four four road trip, nicely setting up a four-game homestand. The Hawks tipped that off Easter evening with a solid 117-111 victory over Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and the Golden State Warriors. Steph finished with 37 points, coming back from a tailbone injury that he's still dealing with. Now, the game had 16 lead changes and 17 ties before a Bogdanovich three-pointer put the Hawks up 100-98 with seven minutes to play. 
and our side never trailed again after that. Gallinari finished with 25 points off the bench. Clint Capella with 24 and 18 rebounds. And great clutch time minutes from Lou Williams. Many of them with Trey Young on the bench cheering him on. Now, Lou finished with 15 points and a game high plus 19 in the plus minus category. His first game in Atlanta in this, his second stint with the Hawks. Now, he considered retirement after he was traded. However, we as Hawks fans are very fortunate. He realized he still has a lot to give out on the floor. Something else evident to me and his teammates is the chemistry Lou already has with Gallinari from their time together as Clippers and the chemistry he has with Clint Capella from their time together as teammates in Houston. Simpatico is a good thing. Now, while Capella continues to grab rebounds at a freakish pace, there's no timetable or no definitive word on when John Collins will return from the sprained left ankle injured that injury that he suffered while in Phoenix. Hawks are truly living the next man up mentality. And let's have some final fun with the number 10. There are 10 men in front of Dennis Rodman on the NBA's all-time rebounds per game list. Wilt Chamberlain is a number one at 23 rebounds per game, or 22.89 to be exact. Bill Russell is second at 22.45 rebounds per game. The late Elgin Baylor is 10th on that list at 13.55. And we thought Rotman was next level at 13.12. But Rotman did it with a henna in his hair, so there's that. Now, during his playing career, we all found out that one of Dennis Rotman's good friends happens to be the great Eddie Vedder, lead singer of Pearl Jam. Now, it should not be surprising that my favorite Pearl Jam album is 10. That's right, the very first one out to shoot. And this seems the appropriate time or season to drop somewhat of an Easter egg in the podcast. I have a tremendous story about Dennis Rodman flying to a Pearl Jam concert while he was a Chicago Bull in season and how he didn't give two shits about the band Pearl Jam opened for some group known as the Rolling Stones. Now, my hope is to have the guy that was Rodman's wingman on that road trip as a guest here on the podcast soon because he also has serious Atlanta ties. So for those of you who have been rolling with me for 10 episodes, well, keep that in the back of your head. Oh, and thank you. For now, though, let's bounce to a little different beat. Focus on a 10-year run of success that's really unparalleled in the highest levels of sport as we explore an even flow, albeit from the world of track and field. That means we are just a couple of minutes away from bringing on my special guest. Well, it's almost time to get to that part of the podcast that everyone seems to enjoy more than the other part. And uh, that means my my invited guest is coming on here in a moment. But before we get to that, uh, I want you to think about a couple of things. First of all, let's say you had a job that you really love and you were really good at that job. All right. And I'm not saying it's not hard work. It could be the hardest working job you've ever had, but it's just the job that you really value and you appreciate. And one June, you go to work, and at the end of the month, you get your plaque because you are the employee of the month. And you got to feel pretty good about that. And then it comes becomes a little bit competitive, so you maybe for July, you become the employee of the month again. So let's say you go three or four months where you're the employee of the month. That would make you feel pretty good. I would stick my chest out pretty good. But after three or four months, I got to tell you, I'm going to slack off just a little bit. 
Now, I know in this edition of A Toast to the A-Town, we've been talking about focus, about the Hawks being on that long road trip, about staying focused and keeping your eyes on the prize. And I talk about that employee of the month thing because we're going to shift the focus a little bit to track and field because that's where my invited guests really excelled. And I mean to the level above the level, above the level, above the level. And I realize that in the United States, where track and field ranks for a lot of people is it's something they watch during the Olympics. And everybody involved in track and field has understood that forever, okay? But still, if you're going to participate, you want to be the absolute best in the world. So I'm just going to backtrack just a little bit, okay? I talk about the employee on the month thing. Maybe for a lot of you younger folks out there, I bring up the name Usain Bolt, and we know how fabulous Usain Bolt was. In addition to the world record, Usain Bolt won 45 races in a row. And I know that's crazy. That means he went to work 45 times and it's y'all behind me. Eat my dust. That's incredible. I'm going to take you back a little bit longer. You'll remember the name Michael Johnson excelled in the 200 meter and the 400 meter races. All right. For eight years, he kicked ass in both those races and he won 58 races in a row. All right. 58, not 45, 58. Crazy numbers for both of those athletes and both of those that you recognize if you're a little bit younger than some of the other folks that are listening to this podcast. That being said, my invited guest did not win 45 races in a row. He did not win 58 races in a row. He won 122 races in a row. He basically went an entire decade without losing a race. Nine years, nine months, nine days, okay? So he was an employee of the month. He took that shit to the next level and the level and the level beyond that. World records and uh, Olympic records does it all. And of course, he's an icon of his sport, but the track at Morehouse College is named after him because he is also a Morehouse man. So he's really a man that needs no introduction at all, but we do this right now. And we say thank you very much for joining us and welcome to a toast to the eight towns. I say hello to Dr. Edwin Moses. Edwin, thank you very much for joining us, man. How are you doing, Andre? Good to see you. Good to oh, see you. It's good to be with you, man. Hey, Edwin, so I want to take a little walk, take a little walk back here. And especially there are a lot of folks that are listening now that know your story and, and obviously know the exploits. But there are a couple of things I really need to hammer. And what I want to do is I want to go back to the 1976 Olympics. And for those of you who aren't old enough to know, a lot of us call those the Sugar Ray Leonard Olympics. So they're in Montreal, Canada, and uh, Sugar Ray kicked butt in those Olympics, and we're focused on boxing. But there is a guy from Atlanta, Georgia, technically from Dayton, Ohio, because that's how they was pumping him up on the broadcast. But he went to Morehouse, and he was kicking ass at the age of 20, and he won the gold medal in the 400-meter hurdles and he won it by eight meters, which is just a mile. So that's crazy. And Edwin, first of all, tell me, how long had you been running the hurdles before you conquered the world in 1976? I had only been running the hurdles for four months. I think that was about my 10th <laughs> race. Uh, but I had been running 400 flat and, and, and the 110 hurdles. And I made dramatic improvements from my sophomore year at Morehouse, 75, until that year. So... I, and then I picked the right event. I qualified for three events for the Olympic trials in two days at the Florida Relays. Uh -huh. uh, did la it would have been last weekend uh, in uh, 1976, so 45 years ago. Yeah. But but still, okay, I, I'm going to give you credit for doing the 400 well. I'm going to give you credit for the 110 hurdles. You ran well. And when there were still other people running the other race. So it wasn't like it was new to them. They'd been kicking ass in that race, too. And 
if everybody goes back to YouTube that hasn't seen the race, uh, first of all, you're going to you're going to hear the great Keith Jackson calling the race and his uh, analyst was OJ. So just hey, it is what it is. All right. So but you're there and you're representing they're calling you out for Dayton as much as they are for 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 for, for Morehouse. What they was did. your confidence level like for that? I was uh, I knew I was going to win, Andre. I had, <laughs> well, from the first from the first day that I ran the race, I ran 50.1 each race. I, I I made better times. I I, I improved uh, by leaps and well, incrementally. Uh -huh. but these increments were very significant. It was a couple of tenths here, a couple of tenths there. So I improved from a fifty point one. And uh, in the race, I think you're going to show it. Uh, I had improved a full second and a two and a half seconds by the time you're looking at this race. But uh, you know, I was studying engineering and physics at Morehouse, so. I was really in tune to a whole different way of looking at the race from diet and exercise and mental, you know, being in the space where there's, you know, a, a young guys that look like me. And I was a smart kid in, in, in high school, but, you know, there were five of me in every class. So, right. You know, the curve, the curve was a whole lot different than me being at the top of the curve. So having to adjust to that. But I was in the right environment at an HBCU at, at a very critical time in my life. So when you say, and again, uh, and I'm, it's my podcast, so I get to bring the personal in, but so as a physics and engineering major, you, you may or may not remember this, but the first time I ever came to your house and I walked into your house, you may not remember this, but on your kitchen table, you were building a model airplane. And, 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 and as a young in, in, inquisitive black man like yourself, I was into that too, but this airplane was not like something you could go buy at Walmart, everybody, or something you could go get at the store. It was like Icarus was working on an airplane. So I know your parents were educators. What <laughs> was that inquisitiveness and, and wanting to be something hard like physics and engineering a part of you always growing up? My dad, my dad studied biology and chemistry at Kentucky State, which was another Ooh. HBCU. So I grew up looking, I mean, I'm like eight, nine years old. I'm looking at organic chemistry books, <laughs> botany books, looking at the at the equations. I didn't know what they meant, but one day I, I could imagine myself understanding it. I collected fossils. Wow. Uh, you know, I was in a rocket club. I built a soapbox derby, you know, and that uh, that model that you're talking about was uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine. Thank you. And it was all built from scratch. You had to, uh, you had to basically manufacture and synthesize the parts. All they gave you was, was wood and told you to go buy a toolkit. So, uh, but see, it took, it took seven years to put that thing together. But it's the actual model, accurate model of what he did. So I, I've always been into science. Man, that's so awesome. so for me. You know, you've always been my guy. But and and you're worldwide for your athletics, man. But for me, I'm like. No, I'm legitimately with an engineer. I'm and look, I, I went to a smart school. I wasn't in the smart classes, but uh, I was around the engineering guys. And I gotta tell you something, man. You blow all of them away. So you bring up just having everything analyzed, Edwin. When I went to ESPN in '96, the internet came out. Okay, I remember that big deal and the dial-up and all of that. In '76, before going to the Olympics, you put a computer mindset to what you were doing in the hurdles. The hurdles were, everybody ran 15 steps between hurdles. You right. revolutionized it by going to 13. How right. do you do that at 20 years old, man? Um, I, I thought about things and I was uh, analytical, but the biggest thing was that I really just enjoyed track and, fit, uh, track and field, <laughs> just like the guys run around today, the basketball junkies uh -huh. with the ball and the mm -hmm. uh, extra pair of shoes in the bag, and you know they're bouncing the ball. 
I, mine was track shoes. Mine was track shoes. And although um, four months before the Olympic Games, before I went to that first meet, uh, I had no idea that I would be Olympic champion. But once I smelled blood, <laughs> once, once uh, I, I started beating guys that I used to, you know, uh, read about in track and field news. And uh, one of the things that I can say is once I beat you, that was it. You'll never beat me again. <laughs> and uh, during those 122 races in a row, I lost three three races the first year. Okay. Uh, my first year uh, before the 76 Olympics. And then I lost one in 87, one in, uh, one in 88. And uh, I think I fell down in the rain. Yeah, mm -hmm. I only lost six races out of probably about 170, 180 my whole career. Your whole no, no one ever beat me twice. No one ever beat me twice. And uh, once I started winning and uh, I, I, I got that energy and I was still improving at the time. So I worked I worked my butt off all the time, you know, really mm -hmm. went beyond, uh, you know, physically and mentally to, as to what it takes to be an Olympic champion. But I had no idea six months before. I knew that I wanted to make the Olympic trials and that was my goal. I figured if I make it to the Olympic trials, then, you know, that's my career. I, I've, I've, I've arrived in track and field. Now again, so once I got going, that was it. I was, I was, yeah, it was. The, the, time, the time for the gold medal in 1976 was 47.64, a world record, Olympic record. And I'm saying all this at one, Morehouse College did not have a track. And I have bumped oh. into a couple of folks, uh, with you who described from that time it's like they're watching the olympics because of sugar ray <laughs> and as you were going through this couple who they're still married now they're like that looked like that guy to be running around atlanta and guess what how do you train when there's no track at morehouse where were you where were you running getting ready other than you know the prelims and stuff jumping fences i i you know used to, uh, go into georgia tech and train in the middle of the day uh, Lakewood Stadium ended up being the place where I ended up training the most, but Avondale Stadium, uh -huh. uh, uh, what's the uh, the high school across from uh, uh, Piedmont Park, okay. uh, trained there, but most of the days, and also a lot of cross country running out at Adams Park, mm -hmm. uh, Adams Park, and uh, getting up in the morning and running on the streets around down Fair Street and Northside Drive and coming up by the Morehouse School of Medicine like every day at six o'clock in the morning, then go into class. Wow. But once, uh, and, and the thing was, is that once I got good enough and started running on rubber tracks, you know, <laughs> a lot of the tracks that we ran on in the uh, SIAC were actually concrete with stripes on them. They were wow. just stripes. And we used to have to wear these quarter inch spikes on them. And, you know, it just sounded like a, a steam shovel rolling over when you run. Those things would hit the track and, and the sparks wouldn't be coming up and everything. But once I got good and started running on those rubber tracks and had a good pair of track shoes, I felt like I was rolling, uh, like I was rolling in a, in a, in a map back. Man, for that first gold medal, I actually have to say, too, that uh, the silver medal went to Mike Shine, USA teammate of yours, Edwin he looked as happy for you as a family member. And my only thought then was that he knew he couldn't beat you. So no he doubt. really won the rest of the race. Well, there were two Americans. One one was Quentin Wheeler. He went mm -hmm. to uh, San Diego State mm -hmm. and Mike Shine. And Quentin was a little strange. I didn't communicate with him too much because he actually thought he was going to win. So we, <laughs> stayed away, we stayed away from each other. And Shine said, well, this could be a sweep and I'm going to be number three. <laughs> Well, he had he had his eyes set on number three. So I remember, I think the day 
a, maybe a day before we, we ran three days in a row, Friday, mm -hmm. Saturday, Sunday. He asked me what my race plan was. I said, make it through on the first day, mm -hmm. the second day. You know, I said, I'll probably, I told him I'll probably break the American record in the semifinals. <laughs> and the third, I told him on the third day, I'm going to, I'm cutting loose the afterburners. It's <laughs> like a jet play. And uh, he said, really? He said, what do you think you run? I said, probably around 47.5 and his eyes popped. He said, well, damn, I'm just going to be in the, I'm just going to draft you there. And I'm going to just, you know, get get as close as I can and stay in the win and see what I can do. And he ended up winning the silver medal. He was so happy because of that. Oh, gosh. Gotcha. Okay. I told him my race plan. I told him exactly what was going to happen. Oh, man. I said, when it gets to the seventh hurdle, you're going to see me go. If you're smart, you'll start making your move and then you can kill everybody else off. And that's what he did. He was happy. He was the happiest man on the planet. For that, for that, for that hour, absolutely. Yeah, well, what was it? What also was it about your your makeup? I understand the competitive spirit, but as to the race itself, and again, narrowing between the nineteen to the first, thirteen steps in between, it really looked like you would glide. And even the best hurdlers in the world, I could almost see them calculating or counting, or okay, I don't want to hit a hurdle or anything. What was it that allowed you to seemingly glide or or maybe not jump? It's a better way of saying it from my perspective. Physics, just okay. straight physics. Um, my philosophy was what I'm not jumping over the hurdle. And my vision was very, very bad. So if oh. I took off my glasses, for example, the 40 meters, 45, the 40 meters between the hurdles, I couldn't even see one hurdle to the next. It just completely fades in like a projector, like a like a, a movie that's completely out of focus. So I couldn't see anything. Oh. Had my glasses fallen out off, which they did one time, and I fell in the rain. I had to squint. And oh. so I changed the whole way that I looked at the race. I was running. I'm moving. So everything, I felt like I was the, the stationary body and the hurdles were moving at me. So I just controlled my running and what I had to do in order to maintain 13 steps and just waited for the hurdle to come. And then instead of jumping and hurdling in, in, in the traditional sense, right. I just saw myself using an exaggerated step, uh, a very powerful step, not leaving the ground, staying uh -huh. flat as can be and getting back on the ground and running as quick as possible. Wow. And no one else could do that. Everyone, right. everyone waited to the hurdle, right. waited for the hurdle <laughs> to approach. Mm -hmm. and then they jump up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And while they're jumping up, I'm jumping over and gotcha. my feet are on the ground. So while they're in the air, I'm moving away each and every time. Oh, man. So I, I picked up a lot of yardage. And then on the other hand, you know, going into a turn, you're running a, a left hand turn in the 400 meter hurdles. Mm -hmm. And the radius of that turn is about from where they measure the, the turn in, in, into the track is about 125 meters. But for me, and it's basic math. Everyone, everyone who's taken algebra knows that the circumference of a circle is two pi r. So a half of a turn is a half of a circle. And so you multiply pi, which is 3.141516, whatever it is, times the radius, which is 120 meters. And and and, and the, the lanes are four feet wide. So if you're running on the inside of the lane versus the outside of the lane, you're adding about eight feet per turn. So I always ran on the inside of the lane. Uh, and so I picked up yardage there as well. I probably didn't have to run 15 or 20 feet that everyone else had to run. Wow. And that was the difference. But I never told anybody. <laughs> You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. It was something magical. And, you know, they were looking at me like uh, like I was a Bruce Lee and everybody wanted to peep in the windows and see the workouts. 
but the workouts were brutal too. They, mm -hmm. I, they, they sent coaches down to watch me work out thinking that they're going to steal my stuff and take it to their guys. Everyone who tried it, man, their guys were pulling hamstrings and breaking down and sore. Well, let me add it. Let me add an important spring. either. Let me add either an important point or important question, because for all of this and yes, it's it's you know, I've got this with boxers. I know just because you prepare doesn't mean you're going to execute. So when you say all of this, Edwin, did you have a coach or was Dr. Edwin Moses his own coach? I taught myself how to run hurdles from the That's very crazy. beginning. That's crazy. And I, I modified and perfected my style individually. We did have a coach at Morehouse. Uh, mm -hmm. He didn't know that much about hurdles, but I depended on uh, one of the greats, uh, uh, great coaches, Dr. Leroy T. Walker, who was a coach at NCCU mm -hmm. and became the president of North Carolina Central. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. And also became the first uh, black man to become the president of the Olympic Committee. And then there was an, and he had a PhD in kinesiology. So we communicated on the same level. Mm -hmm. And then there was another gentleman who was the coach, uh, actually coach Rod Milburn, who was the Olympic champion from Southern University in 1972. And he coached Willie Davenport, who Whoa. won the Olympic gold medal in 1968 and a bunch of other guys. And he had a PhD in kinesiology. Wow. Wow. So those were the only two guys I listened to because they could understand what I was talking uh -huh. about, mm -hmm. about staying on the ground and, you know, just working with those guys and doing what I did and, and also putting together a top notch program. Uh, but for, for 90 percent of my career, I was um, I was the the owner, the the, the, the <laughs> jockey, the horse and the owner. That's so awesome. I'm out there running on the track and hitting my stopwatch and running, you know, running and hitting it at the end and. Uh, um, managing the workout, dreaming up the workouts, wow. going to physical therapy. So, you know, I want, I want to be in the hall of fame uh, next to Bill Russell was the greatest player coach. I thank you. I Very for a long time. Uh, he, was, he was the guy, he was the first one that actually did that and, mm -hmm. and was successful at it. Hey, Edwin, uh, it's, it's interesting. Cause, cause I, I hear it in your voice and you already said it. Um, want to talk about HBCUs a little bit because now I, and, and we're all proud of, of Vice President Harris uh, from for, for representing HBCU in the White House. Um, Deion Sanders is getting a, a lot of notoriety for, for uh, Jackson State. But there's a feeling I get from people that haven't dealt with HBCUs or know that HBCUs are last chance university. And as you can say from your father, from the people you looked up to, that HBCUs have been having an impact on our people <laughs> for eons. So what does it mean to you now to see how maybe a lot of folks are recognizing HBCUs a little more today? Well, um, during my time when I was growing up, most African-American athletes had no choice but to go to an HBCU. You know, uh, University of Georgia, University of Alabama with Bear Bryant, uh, Adolf, uh, what's his name? Adolf Rupp at Ruff, Kentucky. Kentucky. He said, we won't have no N-words mm -hmm. on our team now yep. or never. Mm -hmm. That was the attitude. The, the, the majority white colleges should be bending over backwards to thank the HBUs because all of that talent in baseball, mm -hmm. football, you look at the football hall of fame, Mean mm -hmm. Joe Green and all yep. these guys, everyone went to HB, Walter Payton, HBCU, Gary Rice, mm -hmm. everyone went to a HBCU. And, 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 and notwithstanding the fact that we had great football teams, I wish that the football teams that existed 30 years ago were able to play 
you know, against a lot of these major rivals today. Yes, sir. The way that they were stacked. But now, you know, the white institutions have stolen all the top talent, mm -hmm. all the athletic talent. But the ones that do go to the HBCUs can still go to law school, yes, can sir. still be a researcher, can still go to medical school. Morehouse puts out more PhDs in computer science and you know, uh, as one institution, more black ones than everyone else in the country. So uh, we all had to, we, 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 not that we were forced to, but it wasn't a conducive environment. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, I went, I went to Ohio. Uh, I, I could have gone to Ohio State, but I wasn't really good enough. Uh, but I, I, I really didn't want to go to a school that had 60, 80,000 students, to be honest with you. Got you. Got you. As, like, a proud, as, a proud son, as a proud son of Dayton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't I didn't feel that that was the right environment for me. So I went to a school with with twelve hundred students mm -hmm. and did everything, got academically and, and, and in sports because I was in an individual sport. Right. that I could do. But, you know, Morehouse won't be able to compete in basketball and football. Mm -hmm. Basketball now, the last three or four years, they've been going to the NCAA mm -hmm. uh, tournament every year. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you can imagine that a lot of these athletes that go to the major institutions that may or may not graduate, if we were able to get those guys to come to to Howard, mm -hmm. you know, to to Southern, mm -hmm. you know, to Florida A&M, Mm -hmm. all these different institutions, we could be much competitive in, in, in basketball and, and get some of that TV money, which is the reason that we can't get the athletes in the first in, place. In the first place, I hear you. That's 22 that we're caught in now. And I just hope that um, in my lifetime, we're able to get those students back and convince them that you can go to a HBCU and, and still go to the NBA because we've mm -hmm. had guys from Morehouse who have gone to the NFL and NBA. Absolutely. Yep. Hey, Edwin, it's, and again, before the explosion at the Montreal Olympics, and as you're trying to get your name out and stamp yourself on, and you know, I'm a, I'm a proud USC Trojan, and, but tell me, when you went to meets and guys from USC and UCLA and these big schools looked around and they saw a thing from Morehouse and this was pre-Olympics, did they laugh at you? They did. They did. You know, when I when I left high school, my junior year in high school, I was five, seven, 117 pounds. I've got the original football roster. So I was a always a skinny guy, lean and skinny. Mm -hmm. uh, Morehouse, when I went to the Olympics in 76, I was six, one and a half and about 160. So I was lean. And I remember that um, they were uh, questioning my times that that I ran at the track meets down here in the South because mm -hmm. no one could afford electronic timing. And that's when they made the move from hand timing where you have, you know, right. uh, eight, one guy per lane, two or three of them drunk up there trying to <laughs> hit the stopwatch when you hit the line. So there were a lot of inflated times. And they thought that my times, when I ran like 48.8 and 48.9, mm -hmm. and they were hand timing, they said, oh, he didn't run those kind of times. He's right, down right. there. Right. And no one had ever heard of Morehouse. Right. And so the rumor was, you know, there was one big guy that went to University of Iowa. I forget what school, but the top two guys were from the Midwest, big schools in the Midwest. And then you had the guys from UCLA and USC and San Diego State. And they saw me on the track and I was the skinniest one out there. Uh -huh. And uh, one guy made the comment. He said, yeah, I hope it's windy today, because if it's windy, that's going to blow Moses off the track. <laughs> Man. I, I beat those guys by like seven or eight meters the first time. <laughs> and so they thought that I, my times were bogus. Mm -hmm. And then when they saw me run after that, I could, everyone was watching me warm up. Once I went out to the track, because I don't talk when I when I'm around a track, I go out, man. I'm not friends with no one. It's a gladiator sport. And I feel I got on my gladiator hat. 
I ain't talking. There ain't no jokes, you know, mm-hmm. no talking about anything. Mm-hmm. I get out there in the series. So they used to watch me warm up, but I could watch them, see them watching me warm up, and I could see them melting down before the race <laughs> even started. Because I never looked at them. I paid them no mind. And they knew that when when it was time to get on the track, they were they were shaking. They were shaking. I think one of the early questions I ever ask you that surprised me, and not that I have all the answers, I don't even pretend to know the answers, but I ask you about all those guys you beat over the years. And as you told me, it's like I couldn't really tell you, man, because those guys were behind me. I don't, I don't know about I have them. No idea. <laughs> Take no prisoners. I remember one race in Europe. This gentleman, I'm not going to give any names. I was so fearful and and it was a big race all the big dogs were in the race and uh he was at the at the start line i heard someone i said is someone crying (laughs) (laughs) someone crying it's kind of like like a baby you know when you after they after they cry and then you kind of get them to calm down they're going (laughs) i said what the (laughs) i said oh my god I don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> oh man, you're in your twenties. Go ahead and cry. Walk Edwin's... off the track now. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness, man! But so, I, I'll talk now. I never talk. I never talk crap when I was running. I was mm-hmm. very respectful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a long race. It's a very hard race. So 400 meter hurdlers, you don't see us talking, talking oh, crap and right. you know bragging and wolfing and all that. Mm-hmm. Hey, so Edwin, we, we die before the end of the race. So every time. So let's go from 1976. Obviously, uh, United States boycotts the 1980 Olympics, where you would have had more medals. So we push ahead to 1984. The Olympics are in Los Angeles, and again. This is a young man's game. So just because you had gold in 76 and we skipped an Olympics and you had won 104 straight races, there's still no guarantee to me as a fan, okay, that you're going to grab the gold there in Los Angeles. And yet in 1984, this time, not with the great Keith Jackson, but with Al Michaels calling the race and with the analysis done by uh, Ronaldo Skeets Nehemiah, who went around the, the uh, 110, um, there, L.A. Coliseum. Once again, Edwin, you're handling your business. Uh, it looked like you had a false start. Now, was it a false start or, or was there something with the cameras? Cameras, the cameras. They were. I was in lane six, I think. Mm-hmm. And so that put me 48, 48, like 12 to 15 feet away from the uh, mm-hmm. away from the bank of cameras. And they were all in that turn. They were all around that turn. And, you know, back then the motor drives, well, they were pushing film back there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now everything is digital. So those big motors, you know, it, 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 you don't hear that. You know, mm-hmm. it almost sounds like you're starting up a car back then. You right. Know, the right. Cameras with the big uh-huh. lenses. So the motor drives start whizzing and whirring. And uh-huh. we're after after the guy uh, raised the gun and said set, then a guy pushing the button. I was <laughs> I was so upset. And oh, my so then you compose yourself, though, and you're able to take off. And Edwin, you win the race in 1984, just like you're kicking ass in 76. And and I know it's it listen, I'm good at dumb questions, but I'm just how? How do you how do you focus and know that you know what? Because the only guy you had lost to before, the West German Schmidt, was was in the lane next to you. Right, right. Well, focus, you know, the 400 hurdles, each and every time you go out there. There's 10 obvious places where you can make a mistake, including mm-hmm. the starting blocks. And mm-hmm. at each hurdle, there's three different parts. There's takeoff, 
uh, takeoff, transitioning in the air and landing. So that's 30 mistakes you can make right there. Ooh. Yeah. And the striding in between. You have to get to the hurdle to take off at the right point. And if you don't, you're going to make a mistake or two each time. So that was my most uh, conservative. It was very hot out there. I think it was like 96 degrees for the third day in a row. It was a very conservative race. I just wanted to finish the race. So I didn't mm -hmm. win by, I think I won by about two and a half, three meters, mm -hmm. but that's all, that's all that matters. I, I didn't want to take the chance on winning by six to eight meters, which I knew I could. Uh -huh. I just wasn't going to take the chance on something going wrong because uh, uh, the jinx was in for someone in the Olympic Games is always an Olympic champion that doesn't do it. And it wasn't going to be me. So that was my slowest race ever in an international competition. And still, you are a three-time Olympic medalist yeah. because you came back to Seoul in 1988 and you picked up the bronze then. Edwin, yeah. this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was a span of four Olympic Games. And, yes, uh, yes, sir. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did, we, you know, they changed the schedule and I did not have enough time to recover from one day to the next. We ran at like 7.30 in the evening and then we had to run at one o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And we ran three days in a row then. Now they run Friday, Saturday, and then they get a day off and then they and run they again. So, mm -hmm. so the nature of the event and the type of time you can run is completely different. Mm -hmm. I'm sure mm -hmm. that uh, if these younger guys had to run three days in a row, they wouldn't be producing those kind of times. No, not at all. it's that third day, especially if it's hot, mm -hmm. that wears you out. I mean, mm -hmm. you can beat yourself up mentally before the race even starts because you know that you haven't fully recovered. You've run two days in a row, and you know you're gonna you're gonna die like a big dog at the end. And that's psychological pressure right there that a lot of athletes can't take. Just being prepared and being stabilized and and keeping focus on that third day uh, was really the trick to being an Olympic medalist in a three day competition. Edwin, before I let you go, uh, again three time Olympic champion, uh, world champion, multiple world record setter. Uh, your record of 47.02 and 83 world record unbroken for nine years with all of those accolades you had and all the success. Tell me what the pride was like for you still to have the track at Morehouse College named Edwin C. Moses track. They named the track after me, I believe, in 80, 83 or 84. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're raising money right now to refurbish it. It needs a new surface. So they're, okay. they're, they're doing a lot of work over there now. Uh, also in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, there's an Edwin C. Moses Boulevard. It's at uh, University of Dayton Arena where they play the Southeast uh, uh, Regional wow. Finals is right, wow. on, right on the street. So wow. yeah, a lot of good things has ha have happened to me. Yeah. 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 While, man, I, while I was, while I was younger, both of these things happened yeah, years ago. Absolutely, man. So, yeah. That's awesome stuff, man. Well, look, you know, we appreciate you spending some time here with us, man. You're nothing but the best of the best. And I don't mean just all the records and uh, leaving those guys in the, in the dust. Uh, uh, you've been about uh, anti-doping in your sport. You've been about helping folks. You've been about uh, HBCUs, man. And uh, everything about the Dr. Edwin C. Moses name uh, is nothing but the best. So thanks for joining us here on A Toast to the A-Town. And even though you're dating, uh, you're an Atlanta icon, man. So you got to take that with you. I'm still in, I'm still in Atlanta and still Dayton. So any of the people who are fans out there, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, Edwin C. Moses or on fa um, yeah Facebook at uh, Edwin Moses O L Y for Olympian. Yeah, there those you are go. The places you can find me. 
worldwide follow the worldwide man everybody edwin thank you very much man and uh, we'll be talking to you again here on a toast to the a town and again appreciate your time brother right, as always you, all thank right you. again and folks once again uh do i need to add anything to that uh dr edwin c moses and uh man oh man how about that so it's all about the plan really right i mean the plan's a big part everybody wants to see sneak up and get in on your plan and as he said I had the plan it wasn't about sharing the plan you guess what the plan is but uh it's about get out there producing working so as much as we love athletics as we much as we love to see guys uh make the big shot and make the big play man there's so much about mind power over the physicality of everything the physicality is great and having all the physical tools means a big big deal but i tell you what uh mind power is everything indeed well, that's going to wrap up this edition of A Toast to the A-Town, brought to you by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Andre Aldridge. Appreciate you joining us. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, and I will see you next time. Edwin, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Oh, I still got you. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Oh, wait, wait. I can, I, I can probably. Oh, oh, you know, no, no, because that's on the thing. I'm gonna end this here. I'm gonna stay.